From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome sports fans. Welcome statistics fans. Welcome business fans. Welcome to the show that intersects my three favorite topics, Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts today, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week for two hours talking sports, talking business, and talking analytics here on Wharton Moneyball, here on Sirius XM 132, the podcast edition for the last two years. One of the nice things also about our show Besides, we'll start out with a COVID segment. In our last segment today, we're going to be talking to Neil Payne, who's a senior sports writer for 538. We're going to talk, since the baseball season is starting in two days, we're going to talk a lot about baseball with Neil Payne. So, Adi, Shane, how are you guys doing today? Very good. Doing well. Doing well. Very excited for the start of the baseball season. Well, for those of you that can't see, uh, Adi has, well, Shane is wearing his Red Sox gear. Adi put on his uh, Yankee hat to counterbalance the Red Sox gear of Shane Jensen. I'm wearing neither today, but I'd be happy to uh, put on my Yankee hat very, very soon. But either way, guys, before we get into sports, let's start with a little bit of COVID. Uh, I got a lot of questions for you, but before that, I think one of the nice things we've done over the past two years is just kind of what caught your eye in COVID. So, Adi, let me start with you. Uh, what has caught your eye in COVID over the last week? And then, Shane, I'll go to you, and then I'll have a bunch of questions for you guys. I, I love your question. I can't wait to get to them. But what, if you ask me what caught my eye in COVID is uh, um, we tend to follow Europe by about a month or so. Um, they saw a BA2 up, uptick about a month ago. And it and as we talked about last week, it didn't have the derivative and the second derivative that the previous surges has. And now they're starting to see it go back down again. Um, that leaves me quite hopeful that we'll see just a very little bump up in our BA2 since we're behind and then it, in about a month or so, we'll go back down. That means that right now we're seeing a, a somewhat mini surge. I know we, we're seeing yep. that at Penn among some of our students, um, and, but I don't expect it to be a, a game changer in any real way. And, and as I said, uh, I, what worries me are incoming restrictions. There was an article in the Inquirer, the mayor's health expert here in Philly was saying, should start thinking about you know, bringing some of those restrictions back. I don't think we have much appetite for it, and I don't think it's going to be needed, and I don't think they'll make that call. So let me ask you a question before I turn it over to Shane and what caught his eye. Um, I would imagine that delaying when the potential surge is coming towards the warmer months would be advantageous. And so it's possible that we may even see, I'm just asking your opinion, Adi, that we may see less a bump from Europe because maybe they saw their bump in early March. And we would see the potential bump in mid-April or late April where the weather's warmer. And so you could imagine just a delay tactic might be a good tactic. Would you agree with that? Generally, yes. But I think so much of it, uh, actual transmission comes in, in small face-to-face encounters. Um, and if that's taking, out do- taking place outdoors, then of course you're right. But I still, still think it mostly takes place indoors. Also, people are doing an incredible amount of traveling. Um, we have so much pent-up travel demand and that it is exploding. I went to Florida last week. There wasn't a seat in the, on the plane. The airports were mobbed. And I think that's where a lot of transmission is taking place. Well, Shane, what caught your eye? With Adi, it was about the one-month lag between Europe and us, which, by the way, let me just, since we're also a business show, let me just say what's fascinating to me about it is for everything I study in my day job of marketing, typically it's the opposite because new products are introduced in the U.S. first, then they get launched in Europe. And so the diffusion tends to go the other direction. 
I'm, I'm glad that on our show, we're talking about a topic, COVID, that things tend to go from Europe slash Israel towards us. But Shane, what caught your eye? Nothing really. I mean, it, it's, it keeps going down. You know, yeah. deaths keep going down, down about 700 on average. Well, let me ask, let me ask yeah. you a question. So you're not in this. This is going to be my first question, but I'll, I'll just build on that. So you're not in this age group, but you're talking to two people that are in this age group. So today, the FDA just approved. Let's say you were our doctor. So Dr. Okay. Jensen, you are a doctor, but you're not a medical doctor, nor are we. But let's imagine, Dr. Jensen, you were advising 50-plus-year-old Adi Weiner, 50-plus-year-old Eric Bradlow. You know all, both of us have been boosted. Uh, neither of us, I believe, is immunocompromised. I can speak for myself, but I don't believe Adi's immunocompromised. We're both relatively healthy adults. Um, would you recommend that we get a fourth shot or what would be your assessment of where things are now? And it's got to prove Adi and I right now, after the show is done, we can go to our local CVS, wherever we go and get a fourth shot today. If we want to, what do you think, Shane? Do I have, do I have, or do you guys have any information on when the, the new vaccine is coming out, is coming out the one that's kind of tailored to a later version of the variant? Let's have a little bit of this. Let's let's have a little bit of discussion here. Um, my understanding is it'll be sometime in this calendar year, but that's a very wide interval. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, um, maybe you could tell our listeners why we have a radio show. Why does that matter to you? And let me say, let me say why I'm asking my question. You're making a presumption that I couldn't get a fourth shot now, and maybe in a month and a half I get a fifth shot. That's the special one that meets Omicron and is the universal one. Like why I, I'm asking this in a very, uh, well, I mean, I mean, I guess why my, do you care? Why do my, you care? My, well, I mean, you, you cur- like what the current rule for you getting the fourth shot right now is it can't be within the last four months. Right. That's correct. So, I mean, under the assumption that if a new fifth booster from your perspective came out, it would probably have a similar, at least four month time window on it. Right. If you're following, want to follow the rules. I mean, again, if, if my my I guess my first question as your medical doctor is, do you guys like to follow the rules or not? I I, I know the answer. You both kind of do, mostly. Yep. I mean, yeah. you're Yankees fans. So you can't like following the rules that much, but you know, you both like following the rules. Uh, but anyway, so um, if you do like following the rules, then really the calculation is if there is a new going to be a new better kind of like i.e. more up-to-date tailored to a later variant vaccine coming out in the next four months wait for it because then you can just get that but if it's if if, if you're talking like in this calendar year i.e. probably in the fall yeah get boosted now why not and then just get your fifth in the fall tracking a lot of the data out of israel and obviously israel has given i last time i looked it was something like six hundred thousand people have gotten uh, or they did a, t- a trial of roughly 300,000 in each arm where a bunch of people got the fourth shot, a bunch of people didn't. There was actually a statistically significant difference between the rates of COVID and even the rates of hospitalization. Have you been tracking at all the data out of Israel on the second booster versus not group? I have been, and I don't, I don't think there was enough of a difference to actually warrant recommending it. Um, that was the problem. The day, Israel's data was very murky on whether or not the booster was worth it, um, because the the first shot, the first booster, and the first two shots were doing its job, and and the real issue was uh, they didn't see an infection dropping. Um, I don't think that I'm not sure that the uh, there was a, an appreciable effect size on deaths um, because they were just so small in Israel 
anyway. I mean, it's a small country. So we're already looking at, at uh, pretty small rates. Uh, maybe in a country of the size of the United States, you might be able to see something. Also, it's a, a country where there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cases around. You know, there's a not, a, not a very large base of naive population. Um, so uh, if you ask me about what I'm taking, I, I'm going to revise. You know, I think people should ask themselves, did they have COVID recently as well? Um, that's mm-hmm. got to get in. Oh, that's yeah. something you got to think about. Um, and and uh, if you've had it relatively recently, I mean, I know there are some kids who got it in January of this year and have just gotten it again. Um, they, neither, no one really, none of that age group tends to get particularly sick at all. Um, so that for me is, I, I'm going to wait until I see another bur- surge of another, or maybe another uh, another variant come about, or or potentially when they get a a, a more a new version of the vaccine. But right now, I'm sitting I'm sitting down. Um, Have you seen any? I remember one of the first guests that we had here on Wharton Moneyball about two years ago when the, the, the uh, you know, COVID first happened was, I don't remember his name, and I, I always forget, from Penn Medicine, who said, one of the concerns about getting too many shots too quickly is that the body may actually stop reacting the same way to, you know, uh, in some sense, you get a lifetime amount of reactants to a vaccine. And eventually, if you, uh, oh, thank you, Matt. Matt says David Fagenbaum was, was who it was. Thanks, Matt. That's why we have our producer, Matt Datz, here on Wharton Moneyball. Um, is it possible, have you guys seen evidence that, that's why I was asking Shane, yeah. is he concerned for us that if we get a fourth shot, the fifth shot won't be as effective? Like, are we worried at all about that? And have we seen any data suggest, you know, in some sense, the, the body gets less excited to produce antibodies the more shots we get. Well, I mean, I, I this is this. I, I mean, I, I I doubt we have enough, you know, because so much of the, these kind of studies are confounded with the timing of when you got the shots and all this type of stuff. I mean, the one kind of data, historical data, we could potentially look at if this is if this is if his if his statement was kind of in general about vaccines is the flu vaccine, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that get the flu vaccine lockstep like every year. And there's a whole subset of people that more occasionally get the flu vaccine. Is there any difference, you know, controlling for, you know, other, you know, imbalance? Is there any difference between those two populations? It's unfortunate. Or, I don't think we study that. I mean, that's. Yeah, I they, mean, we probably have it, but that would be a, a thing we could study. I think that's an important question. And we may not know that. And, you know, I wouldn't discourage the, uh, certain people from getting the fourth shot. I just don't think it's the right thing for me to do right now. Um, if I would definitely think about it if I were older, if I had some immunocompromising or some health concerns, and if I hadn't recently had COVID, I think it'd probably be a no-brainer to go get it. Um, but I think this is the kind of thing where let people talk about it with their doctors and with, listen to us and listen to what we have to say. Um, and you're hearing, I think, a pretty range, good range of opinions. And, and make, I don't think there's a right answer for everybody. Let me ask a, a, a question about this, but that is statistical in nature. And we all agree that when you start adding up all the if statements, then essentially you can think of that as multiplication and interaction term. And so we're trying to estimate interactions between age and timing of doses and which dose you got and did you have COVID and are you immunocompromised and are you of good health? Well, you start multiplying all of these things together and you end up with a model with, you know, one way main effects, two way interactions, three way interactions, four way interactions. Are we ever going to have a data set that's going to allow us to make more specific recommendations on a model that has higher order interactions? Really, I really want to know the answer to this question, because you're right, Adi, it is it's context specific to each person. 
But those contexts, it could be five, six, ten factors of which I now need to understand the combination. Let's even say a median split atrium. I'm high, low on ten factors. Okay, well, there's a thousand twenty-four cells. When am I, I going to understand the variation across these cells and what and what I should do if I'm in one of those cells? Yeah, I don't know. I, think, I mean, England might have some data that eventually get publicized, and and because you really need individual healthcare records as well. That's those are the things that really matter. Um, that makes it tailored. Uh, you know, Kaiser. California, they, they probably have 10 million people right there. Um, I know Israel has good data, but but uh, they're not that not that big. Um, maybe maybe we'll see this stuff down the line. And, and for a few of the main factors, like I mean, I certainly feel like the data is out there where we could have a much better idea than we currently do about you know the the two of the dominant factors, which are a the interaction between age and kind of time you've got it like again i think we we do have the data to model sort of immunity as a as a continuous score as opposed to thinking about it as vaccinated or not you know kind of thinking about it as a curve of protection that is both kind of bumped up by boosters and bumped up by now you know actually getting COVID and getting natural immunity all these types of things i think that kind of relationship of how our protection degrades over time that I think we 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 will probably in a few years have a better understanding of that, and kind of how that interacts with age. Okay, well, th- those are certainly lower order interactions. I want the ten way interaction model, but well, maybe no, I'll... that's no, no. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you know, e- even if we had all of America's data, I wouldn't. Would you really feel good about a ten way interaction? No, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. All right, so guys, I want to talk about something else, which is something I harped on for about six months, but now it's back again. So I just went to the CDC website yesterday. To look at the fraction of people above the age of 65, they say are quote unquote fully vaccinated, which is two doses. And you remember we railed on this for a long time because it was like at 98%. At one point it was, yeah, now it's down to 89.1%. So what the hell happened? So what would lead to them? I mean, I know it's a sampling issue. It's a data issue. But do you have any good explanation for why it's now at a number, I think we might all agree that's possibly a realistic number that 89% of people yeah. above 65. What what happened? I don't know what actually happened, but what what, what could have happened, what should have perhaps, perhaps part of it is maybe they actually did kind of at least a small survey kind of like, you know, accounting of like how many people were being double counted or how, how many people who were, you know, kind of vacation vaccining where they came to America, got the vaccine and then, you know, the, but they're not actually from a, you know, type of thing. I mean, all those you could actually do sort of small scale studies to try and ima- estimate those rates and then like, you know, adjust the totals. Here, here's the thing. Um, CDC is, is really an agency that collects data. They're not a statistical agency. So they're not supposed to be doing their own scientific studies. Um, and when they do them, they're farmed out. Um, so I think the problem was in the beginning is they just were counting. And because of the problems, like some of the ones that Shane mentioned, they ended up massively overcounting. And I think they've now realized that the only way to do this properly is with statistics, um, and which is sampling. And they and they've probably done that, and they realized it's about ninety percent. By the way, well, that's whatever, exactly whatever. what they were seeing with whatever. like Facebook. We're showing that too. Concept of face validity. Hmm? We, you validity. Like you, you, you publish a number that says ninety nine point eight percent. It has no face validity to it. And so, no, no, but, but Adi, let me get to my point. My point is as a statistician, we're an analytics show. 
if I build some model or report some data that says 98, 99, the Yankees have a 99.8% chance to win the division. We know that's false. Any model that would predict that doesn't have, there's not that form of validity. So when they reported 99.8% of people, whatever data sources and they were combining, whatever methods they were using, you have to go back and say, there's something rotten here. And why would you report a number that has no face validity? I don't think face validity has really been a CDC kind of mission yeah. priority for the last two years, right? That's not they've been reporting, they've something been reporting they're really 99. into. You know, I've been harping on this in the show. They've been reporting 99% vaccine effectiveness in terms of hospitalization and, and death, where almost the rest of the world reports 90%. Now, you might think 90, 99, what's a nine between friends? A factor of 10? I mean, yeah. it's a massive difference. Um, and no one's reporting 99% vaccine effectiveness. It's real, and, and 90 is amazing. Let's be, and I've said this many times, that's a great number. There's no reason to overemphasize that, that, that it, that's even larger. No, and I, I mean, again, the, the face validity, I, I mean, un, unfortunately, CDC's kind of lost a lot of, I don't, I mean, maybe integrity it shouldn't have had in my mind in the first place, but it's sort of like, you know, how much of it is an actual trying to report scientific evidence versus trying to quantitatively incentivize public behavior. You know, 90% is a completely fine estimate for vaccines effectiveness but if they feel like they got to jack it up to 99 so that more people get the vaccine then it's like you know it's not it's not scientific it's like economics you know or whatever on to the next question but unfortunately you could make an argument that by overestimating the number of people age 65 that have gotten vaccine the incentive for me to get vaccinated to protect other people goes down i'm just saying it could actually have the opposite effect but either way i'm not a yeah. behavioral scientist so i won't claim to know that you know, I, I think this game that, that our government has played um right in the beginning with fauci telling us something not true about masks because he, because uh he wanted to keep them available for the healthcare workers so he told people that they don't work um, and then later, of course, they worked a lot. They were, they, we made the claim that they work a lot more than they do. And then, and then we we talked about how vaccines were going to prevent you from getting sick at all yeah. to, to get people to get vaccinated. But that wasn't even true. And then, you, 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 I think that you, the right answer for our health agencies is just tell the honest truth about what we know with the honest uncertainties, and that's the right answer at all times. And yeah, and and I know that sounds a little bit, you know, maybe it's it, incentives and all that stuff, but use them, but, but don't, don't say something that's not right. And I think the CDC um, has said lots of things that are not right. And they're actually admitting now that they have not published stuff because they don't like the message th that comes out of it. And yeah. that's just, again, I mean, this is just, you know, it's fodder for the critics. Um, and let, let, yeah, let's, let's, let's change this for the future. Let me move on to another topic. So Adi, one of the topics you've talked about many times in our show is death with COVID versus death due to COVID. So right now we're averaging, it's still a high number, but it's way down. We're averaging about 600 deaths per day now in the United States. And let's assume they can measure death. They can measure death. Now, do you think given the lower number of deaths, the lower amount of COVID, et cetera, do you think we're getting better estimates of deaths due to COVID now, as opposed to before when the death rate was maybe four or five times higher and maybe now we're actually getting a fairly accurate death rate due to COVID or not now, particularly Adi. I think it's just a constant percentage. I think there's some fraction of those are, are with and some fraction are due. And I would argue that for the most part, 
a lot of those uh, in, in the, since the beginning. In the beginning, they were due to COVID because uh, we weren't testing. Um, but now that we have massive testing, everybody walks into the hospital to get tested. Um, if you go in to get, you know, to, for a broken arm, you get tested. Um, and what ends up happening is that when people die, if they have COVID, they are they are listed as dying with COVID, and that just gets put into the into the group. Um, and uh, I know eventually the CDC will probably straighten some of these things out because that does get straightened out. There is a process by which you do look at individual deaths and you, and you and you you fix them. But the data that we're looking at now is way too instantaneous for that. Um, It'd be nice if somebody besides the CDC was in charge of straightening that out, by the way. But unfortunately, by the way, when it, every death gets reported to the CDC and they and they do do the straightening out, that's always been their job. Um, that's, for example, one of the things why we, we, we've taken a very long time to know. And now we're starting to know it. The effect of the mental health illness um, on COVID restrictions on mental health takes a long time because that's the stuff that gets, you know, someone dies, but it's months and months before we realize they died because they killed themselves. Um, and that takes a long time to get straightened out. By the way, there's been a big report about massive increase in mental health um, issues, particularly in young people. I mean, it just, and we, we've talked about alcoholism, uh, opioid uh, uh, deaths. Um, it's just been a, a terrible blow, particularly to the young people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just an observation. Okay, maybe just to my last question for our segment here. Um, a recent study came out, didn't surprise me in its results, about ivermectin. They finally did a randomized control trial with ivermectin and showed it actually does not work. Um, the one part about it I found that was interesting was there is a possibility, I, I think it's extraordinarily slight, that ivermectin doesn't work in itself, but it works in combination with other treatments. So how do we think about that as scientists? Well, you're right, a certain treatment may not work, but it's not, forget ivermectin, that's just one example, but maybe treatment A works better when you've already had treatment B or with treatment B. How do we think about even studying those when we're having enough trouble to running what are called beta effects randomized trials? Now we have to potentially have you know someone getting multiple treatments in an arm. How do you guys think about that? Shane, let me start with you. Go ahead, Shane. Well, I, I yeah, I mean, I guess um, it's I mean it's very difficult because yeah, I mean I, I think you're really kind of pointing to the fact that establishing what a, the right kind of comparison or control is is hugely problematic in this kind of ever-evolving kind of population right um i mean we've talked about this i mean i don't want to go to the but but you know some of the kind of you know kind of the the trials or, or kind of you know kind of uh observational studies that are going on trying to come again compare vaccine effectiveness now it's very difficult when everybody's kind of at a different place in what they what they you know where they are in terms of vaccine you know and and we're we're obviously we've kind of you know, the, the, the vaccine, you know, are kind of like the control group is doing better with regards to COVID just because we've gotten better about treating COVID. And a lot of the people that, you know, were, were going to be victims of COVID are, are, have already been victims of COVID. I mean, it's just sort of like the, uh, you know, kind of the more general question of how to do experiments when your populations are non-stationary, essentially. That, I think yeah, it's a fascinating question to me. And that's kind of where my mind goes with this whole thing. Did you read this? Did you read this study about ivermectin and what did what did you or have you read excerpts of it? What did you think? I, I read the ivermectin study. By the way, it was done. It was done over. Started a long time ago. It took place in Brazil, 
um, which is an interesting place to do it because ivermectin is often being used sort of widely there anyway. Um, and that's that to throw us a little bit off. But COVID in general is very hard to test because as quoting David Fagenbaum again, it's really two diseases. There's the early disease that is generally just a, a respiratory virus. And then there's the late disease, which is this terrible body turning in on itself. Um, and it's that second one that you really need to avoid. And so a drug like, like Remdesivir, which was the first approved drug to treat COVID in its late stage, they've done like five clinical trials of it now. Turns out, no, no, it doesn't, doesn't work. I mean, it has right. no that's, that's shocked. I was going to ask you about that too. We just saw a study that says Remdesivir doesn't work either. Yeah, and doesn't work. But on the other hand, they was used as a, as a uh, it, it wasn't because there's no politics behind it, and it was supported by a major drug company. They decided, okay, that's not working. Let's give it to people really early and see if it prevents you from going from disease one to disease two. And that clinical trial looked really positive. Um, and so when you st- take a drug like ivermectin, they claim that it could prevent you from going from disease one to disease two, from it prevent to heal you if you're disease if you're in disease two. It was as a prophylactic. You kind of have to knock them off one at a time. And um, the bottom line is, is that it doesn't. It, there's a whole bunch of early treatments that kind of are like meh. You know, I don't mean when I, I mean they're they're not game changers. They're maybe ten percent to thirty percent um, efficacy, maybe maybe fifty percent. Um, and it also depends on the population. So in other words, they might work well. So budenazide, which which I took when I had COVID, seems to be very protective for kind of healthy people. Um, where the base rate is actually kind of low anyway, and it makes it just even lower, but not so much when it was given to kind of sicker people. Um, I wouldn't take a ivermectin because it first, even though it doesn't have any really any bad side effects, you take it in low dosage because it doesn't really seem to do much. Um, and by the way, there are plenty of other studies before this one that kind of said the same thing, but I, I pointed it out. Um, there's a bunch of, of drugs that people are still hopeful about, like fluoxamine, which is, which is an antidepressant uh, variant that looks pretty promising. Again, in the 20 to 30% efficacy rate, the uh, ivermectin is not that different from that one. I mean, they're all kind of modest little, eh, um, you know, and so we kind of knew that. And, and there were, there's still people talking about being a prophylactic. And that's practically impossible to study. But so um, so let me just... Wow. So let me just say my wish list at the beginning where uh, Shane shot me down when I wanted a 10-way interaction. You've now added other factors on oh, it, which yeah. is, no, no, even which phase of the disease am I talking about? Am I talking about prevention or am I talking about preventing, you know, yeah. that's stage one in your mind? Am I preventing transition from one to two? I'm already in stage two. Now I want to get better. You know, so it's, it, it's even more complicated because we have to look at which drugs may be impactful at which stages. And I think that's absolutely has been, in my view, has been lost maybe a little bit too much in all of this discussion. Yeah, just to finish off, there's a field in statistics where we are very strong here at the University of Pennsylvania called causal inference. And what they try to do is take the observational data not the data that comes from a clinical trial, because that's so, talk about a bucket that gives you very, very, um, very, very narrow group of people to compare. But they look at this massive amount of observational data and then try to tease all of those effects out. And we really have to start relying on some of those causal inference models, these observational studies that are done well, as opposed to many of them, which are done pretty poorly. And maybe hopefully that those can give us some reliable information. Um, they aren't rapid, readily received, received, though, in the medical community because of um, they're not randomized, controlled, placebo-bind, double, double trials. But as I've learned from studying COVID, damn, are those expensive and hard to do. Well, I think what we've learned, Adi, just based on what you've also said for weeks is that in months, 
is that there are a couple of drugs we know, the vaccine that works extremely well. There's some of that work well. And then there's a bunch, as you said, that are down in the morass of this yeah. ineffective to maybe 20% range. And there's lots of those. And so, uh, you know, we'll see going forward. So this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics collide. This is Eric Radler, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the three of us are here, uh, four of us are here every week, along with our co-host, Cade Massey. Uh, you're listening to us on Sirius XM 132, or you're listening to our podcast edition here on Wharton Moneyball. So, Adi, um, it was a big week in college basketball. Obviously, now the men's and women's college basketball is now over as we're recording here today. Uh, last night, I don't know how much of the game you saw, was a very interesting and exciting men's NCAA final game. Uh, North Carolina, which was an eight seed, uh, as far as I know, the first time since 1985 when Villanova made it as an eight seed to the finals. Uh, but certainly deserving. Not only did they beat the number one seed Baylor, defending national champions in their bracket, but they beat Duke in a very exciting uh, Final Four, Coach K's last game. They played Kansas, who was a one seed and a strong considerer, strong team from the beginning. Uh, UNC was up 15 points at the half, 40 to 25, I believe, was the score at the half. And Kansas came roaring back, winning the game by three points. And remarkably, essentially cutting the entire 15-point lead down, I think it was to one, in about four minutes of the second half. So what did you think What did you think about the game? Did you, uh, by the way, it's the largest comeback in the history of the NCAA Finals game. So no team had ever come back. At one point, uh, Carolina was up 16 in the second quarter, but certainly 15 at the half. Um, any thoughts on this? It's just massive variability. Kansas had done it before. They were down to Miami at the half. They blew them out in the second half. What were your thoughts at all watching and paying attention? Well, you know, a down by 15 is an enormous amount in a college game. I mean, it's not an NBA game where they average 120 points or something massive. So think about it like that. That is just an incredible comeback. On the other hand, um, they can, they, they, uh, there's a lot of it, so much variability in play quality. So that can also have an effect. I'm going to point out that I, I, among the four of us, I was the only one who picked Kansas as the winner um, in our little, in our little, uh, our little poll. Um, but why did, uh, let me ask you a question. Why did you do that? Now, one reason, let me ask you, I'll say why you could have, and then you'll tell me why you did. Um, they, in 2020, the year that was canceled, they were the preseason favorite among all the teams. They were obviously a one seed. So, you know, of the one seed, you had four to pick from. And, you know, maybe you were going to pick a two or a three, but you picked a one. Why did you pick Kansas? The path to the finals was easiest. That was the only only reason. And I can't say anything more than that, because once you're in the finals, it, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Right. So and I think I mean, I picked Villanova in Kansas. The, most of us had that on the right side. And I think on the left side, n- none of us had anything else. Um, so why did I pick Kansas and not Villanova? Right. Or, 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 or Duke or I would just say randomness. <laughs> I just can't say any reason. You know, at the end of the day, there really isn't any answer. Uh, I just probably just got lucky with that one. Actually brought up a great point about the equivalence or non-equivalence of a 15-point lead in college basketball with the same lead in pro. Let's start with the fact that pro games, first of all, are 48 minutes, college is 40. So you have a shorter amount of time to make it up. Second, as you pointed out, I mean, the final score in this game, I I, I may have it wrong, like 72 to 69, something like that. 
it's it's 150 points scored. It's not 250, which is scored in a pro game. So a 15-point lead is huge. Plus, the free throw shooting is worse in college. So that means you can catch up less by that means. So to me, this was astonishing. And by the way, um, during the game, I'll say with seven or eight minutes left, Kansas had a six-point lead. So Kansas had turned it around 21 points in about 13 minutes, which was also astonishing. I mean, Shane, what was your thoughts about watching? Well, I mean, I, I kind of want to re- react maybe to what you just said, just specifically about the free throw shooting. Wouldn't actually worse free throw shooting help uh, teams from come from behind? Because, I mean, half of the kind of late game, I mean, maybe not appropriate to this one where the, the comeback kind of happened you know, not in the last, but, you know, I mean, so much of the, like the late, the very late stage of a game is one team that's, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, the team that's behind is like foul, you know, intentionally fouling like crazy to like basically just kind of get possessions, but to generate more possessions. Is it the case that there is actually sort of a, a, a correlation there or, or between, I don't know. Question. You're right. It wasn't the path that happened in this game because there weren't a lot of free throws in the first half of the yeah. second half where uh, uh, North Carolina was missing a bunch, which allowed Kansas to essentially get free possessions. It wasn't, but you're right. You would think that bad free throw shooting by the leading team would give an opportunity to the worst team to catch up. I think uh, my other kind of observation or or just general thing is, is, you know, again, it's worth noting. I mean, kind of got lost in the whole UNC versus Duke big rivalry kind of semifinal, but UNC was an eight seed. I mean, it's it's a low. It's one of the lowest seeded yeah, teams said, to make it to the final. And well, it's the lowest. It's the lowest ever. So them and Villanova, Villanova in eighty five. Well, Georgetown. Uh, the, you mean Georgetown was eight, wasn't it? No, no, no. Villanova was eight. Georgetown was the number one seed in eighty five. Oh, oh, yeah, that's Patrick. Right. Yeah. That Georgetown, Georgetown game. Pat, Pat, that Georgetown yeah. game, that was the one. So, so, so they're tied for the lowest seed ever to make tied it. For the lowest seed ever to make it. Because remember, by the way, and, we talked yeah. about this a couple of weeks ago. Let's just remember, you'd rather be a ten seed than an eight seed. Remember, eight plays nine, which is a very tough game, but then eight plays one. So that's the problem. Eight seeds advance to the Sweet Sixteen with a lower probability. Yeah. Than a ten seed advances to the. But Sweet my 16. my my observation, yes. But I, I, you know, I think one thing that I've kind of noticed from watching uh, college basketball in general is when you get these kind of mismatches, I think there's a real kind of like I, I think the underdog, they, they usually, to my mind, either go one of two ways. Either like it's a domination of the of the actual favorite team from the get go, or the underdog comes out a blazing. There's like this huge adrenaline rush, you know. They, they 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 take a big lead, but they can't sustain it because they you know adrenaline. The better team, yeah. And I mean, like adrenaline doesn't last forty minutes, even if it's a shorter game. It's it's more likely to last forty minutes than forty eight minutes in NBA. But like you know, it 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 just can't last that long. And it certainly doesn't last typically through half time. So I kind of feel like you get these kind of transitions often where underdogs, you know, can get out to these big leads, but sustaining it, I think, is incredibly difficult. A, because you're the worst team, first and foremost, but B, because so much of that early lead was this great, this crazy adrenaline thing that you just can't sustain for the full length of a game. And so I think that's, we kind of saw it happen with, um, shoot, I'm trying to remember the, uh, like sweet uh, elite eight uh, matchup, I saw this happening in as well. Where well, uh, Miami was leading. Miami, Miami was that, leading that was Kansas. exactly we talked. Yeah, about that was lead, they were leading Kansas, and then Kansas yeah. beat them like fifty yeah. to twenty in the second yeah. half. 
that's I guess that's Kansas one of you know kind of Kansas's classic move in this tournament is just outweighing that adrenaline of the of of the uh, of the underdog. Let me give you guys a, a, a data point, but I, I'm going to ask you a question. But I want to give you a couple data points to help you answer the question. Here's the well. Let me give you the data points first. As I told you, 15 down at the half is the largest comeback ever in the history of the NCAA tournament in the finals. Okay. North Carolina leading at the half this season, not leading at any number, was 21 and 0. Okay. At the halftime of last night's game, what do you think was the betting odds on North Carolina? Minus what? Obviously, they were favored. Even though they were my, even though Kansas was minus four at the start of the game, I'm giving you that data point also. What do you think the betting odds were at halftime of the game for you to have on the money line? So just North Carolina to win the game up 15. Adi, what's your guess? And remember, let's just tell people, if Adi says minus 200, he's saying it's a two-thirds chance. If Adi says minus 300, he's at 75%. If he's at minus 400, he's at 80%. Remember, it's never happened before. North Carolina's 21-0. What do you think the betting odds were at the half, Adi? About minus 300, minus 350, I guess. You think you think the odds were, the Vegas odds, were that Kansas had about a 25%, 20 to 25% chance to win a game where it had never happened before in the history of college basketball. Well, they are the favorite. um, And they're they're to one versus an eight. And that's probably never happened before either. And usually when the team is down by It did, actually. It happened in, well, it once played eight in the finals. They weren't down by 15. Um, No, that's never happened. No, so usually when the team is down by 15, it's because they're a shitty team. And that's why they're down by 15. <laughs> and of course they don't come back. So th- and that's why I'm, I'm regressing it so strongly back to back to the halfway mark, although not even close. Still, I'm, I'm still saying 20. And by the way, I'm also offering the odds, right? So that's the, um, you know, Vegas has a cut. So you're asking me the probability, the true probability of what, what the odds are, right? Which one, what's the game? Eric, the odds, guessing what Vegas odds were or, or what the uh, odds, Vegas yeah, odds. So, yeah. So the, Vegas has a cut for itself. So um, and so the probability is always overestimated because they want to pay you less for it. So that's why I'm saying about minus 350 to minus 400. What was your what would be your guess, Shane? I happen to know the numbers. So I just want to know because a lot of people were texting me at the half. You got to go bet North Carolina. This is a lock. I just want to know, Shane, what's your thought? Yeah, I mean, I would probably put it at minus 400, 450. I, I mean, I do think, you know, Vegas probably knows about adrenaline, same as I do type of thing. But like that was a that's a big lead. You know, that's just I mean, you know, I think that's that's the first sort of thing that, you know, is that in a game where there's, you know, you've only got 20 minutes essentially to make up points. 15, it, it's it. You know, it was a pretty epic UNC collapse. So, I mean, I would say probably the odds were more in the like minus 450, 500 range. I don't know. It's all me to say, by the way, you guys are remarkably well calibrated. Uh, depending on what betting line you went to, it was between minus 400 and 450. I assumed at halftime I was going to look at it and it's going to be like minus 700. It shows you I, I obviously was putting much more certainty in a North Carolina win than both the betting odds are. And I, and I like the way that Adi framed it and corrected me in some sense, although he didn't know what I was going to say, um, was that in some sense, the better team was down 15 points. Yeah. So you have to regress severely back towards the fact that it was minus four in the start of the game. And so and also what would be interesting is this is what I don't know. I do know the following that's data. Literally, Kansas missed six layups in the first half. Now, if they make those layups, obviously, it's a much different score. 
And so what would be interesting is if you look and they could compute this now, you guys know would be what would be the expected score in the first half, not the observed score, given where the teams took the shots from and how contested they were. Like while North Carolina was a 15 point lead, was it really like the equivalent of a five point lead in expectation because of what actually just the randomness of what happened? Yeah, out of your thoughts on that. Basically, I mean, listen, the, the minus 15 is on the board. That's there. You can't change it. Um, you're asking me really, do I changing my, my, my ranking? And do I really think Kansas? Yes, exactly. And so, and my answer to that is probably not because they missed those six layups. I don't think they're bad. They, they, things just weren't working for them in the first half. And I, I expect their second half to be more or less independent of their, their first halves. And they should regress back to their generally high quality play, which is exactly, of course, what we saw. Actually, on what basis? Maybe it's true. I've seen this is maybe where I got the things wrong on what basis this relates to the project that you and I are working on now, Adi. So let's imagine you just believe Kansas is having a bad day. Then their second half is not independent of their first half. So what make, I'm not saying you're wrong as a statistician to another statistician. What makes you think that the second half is independent? You just said it. What makes you think that the second half is independent of the first half? I was just like, this isn't Kansas's day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I don't have any specific knowledge. I've never done the study. And um, I would imagine though, if that were something that was real and bankable, it would be something I'd know. I mean, maybe that's a a silly, a silly way to think about it, but if uh, that's a pretty big finding, right. That there would be a pretty strong negative or positive correlation between both the halves um, the after adjusting for the team you're playing, because remember that's the same both halves. So, so in other words, if you out, if you underperform in the first half, you're going to underperform in the second half and not just because your, your top players out because that'll happen with both sides. Or um, I just feel like that's a big finding and, and affects um, that kind of hotness, if you will, um, is, is something we'd like to think about. We talk about all the time and, and strong evidence of hotness is something that I think if it existed, I'd, I'd know about. Yeah, And, and there's a counter argument or at least a counter kind of force to this, which is, I mean, you talk about Kansas like it's a single entity. Kansas is oh. the sum of a whole bunch of players. And so when you say Kansas had a bad half, you're really talking about a whole set of players that performed below expectations. And wouldn't you just, if you were going to say like, oh, now I've got an extra replication the second half, wouldn't you regress them back towards positive like territory just based, you know, based on the fact that they were all underperforming? Yeah, and by and the so way, that, just, you know, the, the non-money line betting odds at the half, either of you want to guess? So remember, Carolina was up 15. What was the point spread at the half of the game? Do you think? Uh, yeah, oh, how much you'd have to take? You probably would have North to North Carolina give- minus what? How many points would you have to give up? North Carolina minus what? What do you think? Five. Oh. I'd say seven or eight. Yeah, it was eight. It was eight and a half. It was North Carolina minus eight and a half. So you want to just talk about just even based on the first half performance, the Vegas odds had Kansas outscoring them by six and a half points in the second half, despite they were outscored by 15. All of a sudden they're going to out. It's a that's I mean, that's a 21 and a half point difference. They lost the first half by 15. But now the Vegas odds predict on an expectation six and a half the other direction in the second half. Which is kind of nutty because the start of the game was only minus four, wasn't it? It's correct. And so now all of a sudden, only the second half is now minus six. That makes no sense. Whatsoever. Well, for the other team, though. 
and conditional on it being a 15 point lead already. No, you're, you're expect you're in the beginning of the game. You expected Kansas to out out shoot to win by four. And in the second half of the game, if you just carried that forward, they should, they should out win by two, but the, but the line is saying six, seven. No, but, but what Shane's bringing up is the important point is conditional on the other team being up by 15. Right, the right, point obviously. spread is not equal I mean, the amount you shift does is not invariant of where you are on the scale. Is that because you know that they're not gonna um, they're gonna let them get close? Yes. Or not, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, probably so. So, guys, I want to also I want to also spend a few minutes, but it's a bigger picture item on the women's game, which I watch. Also, I watch South Carolina, uh, who is the number one overall seed, absolutely decimate UConn. Um, but the reason it made me, first of all, a couple of things I want to say, just so our listeners know, um, I am a big fan of women's college basketball. Uh, the coach of South Carolina is Dawn Staley. For those of you that don't know, three-time Olympic champion, Olympic coach champion. She coached Temple, one of our local schools here in Philadelphia, while still playing in the NBA. We're talking about one of the most accomplished women in the history of sports. And so a big shout out. It's her second national title. But the reason I also want, besides a shout out to South Carolina in the women's game, it's now been six years since UConn has won a title. You know, everyone's like, oh, UConn wins every year. No, they don't. I, you know, other things that made me think of is Tom Brady has won seven Super Bowls. Can't take any of them away from him. If you had told people in 2004 that it would be 10 more years before Tom Brady won another Super Bowl, they would say you're crazy. If you told us in 2001 that the Yankees would have one title in the last 21 years, you'd say we're crazy. If you were told me in 2008 that Tiger Woods would go 11 years without another major, I would say you're crazy. If you had told me in 2000 and uh, I guess 14 it was that Roger Federer would go five years without winning a major, I would tell you you're crazy. So how do we kind of think about these things about, you know, is what are, are you know is was Brady done in 2015 or is Tiger never in 2018 19 ever going to win a title again is Federer just never going to stay on 17 how do you think how do you guys think about these long periods of non-winning and then all of a sudden it kind of clicks back in again because that's what it made me think about Connecticut maybe Gino Arroyo's time is done the greatest coach in the history of women's college basketball. Maybe he's never going to win another title, or maybe I just need to wait another five years. What do you think, Shane? Well, first, I, I kind of, in my mind, make a distinction between kind of the ones that are more individual-based versus organizational. I mean, I think that's a very, you know, so Tiger, Federer, those kinds of things. I mean, that's all about, you know, kind of either luck or, or longevity or whatever, you know, their particular kind of performance that I, I just think about that differently than something like UConn or, you know, like, a, you know, like the Yankees going 20 years without, without a world series, you know, or, or like, the page or the Patriots, yeah. you know? So, so I, I, I think it's sort of like, I think, I, I mean, I, you know, the, for my first pass at the UConn situation specifically is probably one thing that is certainly changing over time to their disadvantage is increased parity and strength of more programs in the NCAA. I mean, I think it's great for the sport that there's increasingly more and more programs kind of sharing that kind of dominance. You know, I mean, I I think UConn was great, you know, kind of their version. That was back like when the Yankees were piling up World Series when there's like two teams in baseball or whatever, you know. And so um, I I think it's good for the sport, this change, but it obviously does decrease, you know, UConn's dominance 
you know, was I think, you, you know, is, is kind of like historically going to be kind of going down because there's just more competition. Um, so that, that, that's kind of my first pass. Um, I'd have to dig more into kind of like their record in like, you know, over the last say decade or like six years or so to sort of see how close they've been. If they've been just kind of a couple bad breaks away, because I mean, the Yankees are still, you know, I like, I think most of their last 10 years or, or, or last 20 years, if you want to kind of call it of only one world series, poor Yankees. I think a lot of that has been just kind of bad breaks. I don't think there's necessarily anything. I mean, there, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys could fill an entire show about organizational mistakes they've made along the way, but I think that's more just about, cause they're always kind of contending. They just haven't had the breaks go their way, the way they did back in like, say the not, or late nineties, early two thousands. Well, actually, is it also possible? I like your separation between individual sports and team sports. It's also possible, you know, if Mike Krzyzewski is retiring age 75, you know, eventually there'll become a time maybe, maybe where Bill Belichick is not as effective a coach. Maybe you could say the same about Gino Oriema. Mm-hmm. What about the possibility of just that? It may not even be ages, might just be longevity. You know, you don't, after coaching 30, 40 years, you know, you're just not as effective. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think it's got to be kind of hard because again, you, it, it's not, even Bill Belichick, I mean, he's the one guy and maybe you're really kind of talking about his, his like mental acuity or something like that. But I think even more dominant is, again, Bill Belichick is like it's a whole organization where he has to maintain this coaching staff. And the more successful you are, the more those people end up going on to other things. So, it's it, again, to kind of it, it's this constant like renewal process as an organization to maintain high quality, high level performance. And it's actually almost given that most, I think the forces run counter to the main, that maintaining it's more impressive when you do have these like long sustained kind of periods of excellence. Fascinated again by these teams that don't like, I, I, I consider one of the greatest things that Brady didn't win a Super Bowl for 10 years. And then now has a bunch, a second bunch in some sense. It's like he's had one's one every has won one every other year for the like last six years. You know, yeah. I'm hoping one for this year, but go ahead, Adi. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you don't quite, uh, the, most people don't quite get is that when there's a random component, you get these long streaks of either of wins or of, or in this case, uh, gaps of losses. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that people don't appreciate. It's why it's so easy to tell um, the difference between an actual sequence of coin tosses and ones that people make up, because the ones that you make up don't have these long strings of heads and tails. You just sort of force them to be short. Um, here's here's one since we are a business school. Um, when I started working at Penn in 1999, I started investing in the stock market. And then uh, about 12, 13 years later, when I was a full professor, my stock market portfolio went up zero because the S&P 500 over that period of time went up nothing. Yet over the history of it, it goes up like incredible amounts. So you can always find a, a piece of uh, a, a plot of time where things don't go counter to what your ordinary impression is in whenever there's randomness. What's also interesting about the uh, women's game as well, just so you guys know, um, Gino Ariema was had been 11 and 0 in the finals, 11 and 0 in the finals, obviously now 11 and 1. But his comment was people are like, well, your streak's over. And he goes, you're thinking about it the wrong way. His comment was, we were the dominant team in each of those 11. Like, we should have won them. But his comment was, we were the worst team this time, and I knew we needed to get lucky to win. So his comment was, he wasn't surprised they lost. Obviously, he wanted them to win. But his comment was, don't put too much in, like, I'm the greatest coach of all time because I'm 11-0. Yeah, you know, we had the better team in each of those 11 games. So his comment was, you know, maybe the expectation is he should have only won 10. 
but let's not make it seem like I should have gone five and a half and five and a half. He was trying to dismiss that as a plausible explanation, which I thought was interesting as well. So guys, we only have about another minute here. Um, let me just, uh, a couple, just one last thing. Are you surprised at all, maybe just in 15 seconds each, Coach K's career is over. He played 100 games in his career against North Carolina, and his record was 50 and 50 in that in that span. So, Shane, in 15 seconds, does that surprise you that he doesn't have a better record against North Carolina? 50 and 50. No, North Carolina is a great team. I think he's 75. He's about 75% against the entirety of NCAA basketball. So the fact that he's only 50% against one of the top programs. Yeah. I mean, that does not surprise me a lot. It doesn't surprise you. Surprises me. Is it because just the notoriety and success he's had, he should be better against North Carolina? Sure. Isn't that their arch rival? (laughs) We will talk about this more in the third quarter. This has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Q3 of Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, at least every week for the last eight plus years we've been here on Wharton Moneyball. You can listen to us here on Sirius XM, Wednesdays 8 to 10, and replayed throughout the week. And of course, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts from at Wharton Moneyball. Uh, the other thing also, of course, you can follow us on Twitter, which is, again, at WMoneyBall. And, of course, if you want to email us, we love taking questions from you, the fans. Please email us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. The other thing is great is that upcoming in quarter four, we have Neil Payne, a senior writer of 538. We're going to talk about baseball. We're going to get into baseball in just a few minutes. Uh, but, guys, before we get to that, uh, this is one of my favorite weeks of the year. I think you guys know I'm a massive golf fan. And one of the things that's uh, happening this week is the Masters. Now, the Masters is normally an exciting event. It's obviously, you know, uh, I think there are some sports where we could debate which the top major is. You know, I think in tennis, we'd all agree it's probably Wimbledon. Uh, Everybody would trade any other title for Wimbledon. But in golf, it's the Masters by a large margin. I mean, U.S. Open's great. British Open's great. The PGA is great, but everybody would trade any of those for a Masters win. Uh, The big news today, of course, is that Tiger Woods announced he's back. He's going to play the Masters. Um, Not only that, they asked him, "Um, do you think you can win? And he said, absolutely, I think I can win. So he's now convinced himself, at least, that he thinks he can win the Masters. And just to remind everybody, um, he did win his 15th major in 2019. Uh, he, cert- he got injured. He had a massive car wreck. He's been out for 50. As a matter of fact, the last competitive round of golf he played was the last round of the COVID-delayed 2020 Masters in November of 2020. He has played no competitive golf against pros since 2020. So my question to you is, do you think Tiger Woods – well, I'll ask you a series of questions. Adi, I'll start with you. What do you think Tiger Woods – would you bet even money that Tiger Woods will make the cut? at the Masters. Adi? Even money. Oh, boy, you got to give me more data about golf to know about even money. What fraction of the players make the cut? Ah, that's ah, – see, you're asking the good questions. <laughs> I think there's roughly 92 players starting at the Masters, and I think top 40 and ties make the cut at the Masters. So it's about 40 – you know, 45%, a little less than half 
will make the cut at the Masters. So I would root for Tiger Woods to make the cut. And I know Masters is his preeminent uh, uh, course of, of all of them. Um, but I don't think I would take even money. Uh, I think I'd like to get some odds. What do you think? Am I, am I off the mark here? Probably off the mark, given his experience at the Masters and also the fact that um, I don't think Tiger Woods would play. It's a self-selection story. I don't think he would play if he didn't think he had the capability of winning the tournament. Like if he goes out and shoots 80 and 80, that would look I, I just don't see that happening. I don't see him playing. Shane, what do you think? Even money, I'll give you. Tiger Woods makes the cut. Yeah, I mean, you know, healthy Tiger missed the cut like at the Masters like maybe once or twice in his entire it's career. Once. Right? I think it's I think it's once yeah. in 25 years. Yeah, and healthy so, Tiger. I mean, healthy Tiger never. Right. Yeah, so I guess uh, that that is what I got you you know, I I guess I'll I'll, I'll buy into his self-evaluation as him as healthy. I'll do a little bit of an age curve and still come out to a very high probability that he makes the cut. Thanks to, again, our producer, Matt Datz. You know what the betting line is, Adi, for him to make the cut? I'm not far off. It's minus 115. Oh. So with the bit in there, so it's about 50-50 for him to make the cut. So not bad. All right, so uh, guys, if I had to say, let's forget about winning. Top 10? What odds do I have to give you for Tiger to be in the top 10? So let's, again, Adi? It's one-ninth of the golfers. It's one-ninth of the golfers. Okay, so this is a tricky one because not making the cut is really – is it is his injury really hurt him? But if he makes the cut, which I'm going to – we'll call 50-50, I think he's much better than a lot of those other golfers, which gives him a better right. chance in the top 10, which is one and two. So, so it's, it's basically one and four times one and a half, one and eight. It's going to be better than one and eight. I think it's probably something like one and six. One in, one in five to one in six is probably what the line is. So it's just so our listeners should talk about the mathematics. First, Adi, we, let's say we all agree it's 50-50 he makes the cut. But Adi's talking about, in some sense, let's imagine we're going to see one of two Tigers. The one that's healthy enough to win the Masters and the one that's not. Well, if he makes, Adi's assessment is that if he makes the cut, it's probably the more healthy Tiger, which means he's got better than a one in four chance which is 10 out of 40 make the, make the top 10 by definition. So that's one quarter. Adi's thinking a quarter times a half is an eighth. Adi's saying, I got to amp up the one quarter part if he makes the cut. And that's where you're at about one fifth, one sixth. Just to let you know, the betting odds right now, it's about plus 150, which is it about, that's, Adi, you would say that's too high. That's like at 60, 40. That's way, way high to make the, Oh, that's top 20. Oh, it's top 20, Matt. All right, so that's now getting reasonable because now in the, the naive math, Adi, would be a half times a half would be a quarter. If you put, say, he's better than that other part, you might be up to a third to 40%, which is not that far away from plus 150. So, Shane, what do you think about top 10 probabilities here? Yeah, I mean, I guess he's he's made top 10. I just kind of quickly looked it up 14 times in 23 years. 20, 23 times he's gone to the Masters, he's made the top 10, uh, uh, 14, 14 of those. So that's 60%. That's 60%. I'm going to shrink it down a little bit due to age, but I'm going to, I'd still put it above 50%. Wow. Or around oh, 50. Holy cow. There Damn, you go. A bit. <laughs> hey, you got, hey, man, you're, you're the base rate guy, right? I am. Not a, you got yeah, a good betting. I just gave you. I, I just gave you a good uh, base rate about fifty percent. I know, but at, at some 60%. point, you got, guy gets into a car accident. And he almost, you know, he almost loses his leg. <laughs> well, yes, and again, I'm conditioning 
on healthy. I'm using what I'm basically taking Tiger at face value being he is healthy. Okay, well that's that's the gamble there. We're, we're gonna. He's we're, healthy, we're gonna, but like two years older than this data would be a you know kind of at the tail end of. So uh, we're certainly going to uh, we're certainly going to find out, and that'll be exciting to watch uh, this week at the Masters. Uh, of course, there's always these they always have these stories, and of course, Tiger's 46. The last time Nicholas won the Masters was he was 46 yep. in 86, yeah. and so you know people are connection. I know people are trying to have a fun connection there. Uh, of course, it would be Tiger's six Masters if he were to win. And again, people are trying to use that as well. Well, obviously, it'll be exciting. And next week, uh, when we're taping our show, we'll obviously have a lot more to say uh, about the Masters. Uh, guys, before we turn to baseball, which we're going to talk about in quarter four almost entirely with Neil Payne, our guest, uh, senior writer at 538. Shane, I just wanted to get your thoughts about the uh, NHL. I, I, I've kept going back to this, but there's two teams in the NHL right now that are having one would call near historic season. So Florida and Colorado are both on track to end up with 120 points. And by the way, that would put them in the top 10 of all time. Let's even say I tell you, Shane, that Florida and Colorado both got to 120 points. Okay. What probability do you give each of them to make the finals? Uh, An all-time team. At least by All-time team. Wait, it's, it's eight per it's eight per uh, conference. Um, oh, thirty percent, <laughs> something like that, something low. Okay, so I just want to be clear. And if I yeah. and if I said to you, how much would it change if I said they were the top teams in each conference, but they were one hundred and five point teams? Not much. Not much. I, okay. I mean, it does. It, it doesn't affect my coin flip model. I mean. Do you remember the last team? You you probably do because you're kind of their fan. You remember the last team that had like a record-setting uh, regular season? It was the hockey? Lightning, right? And they got eliminated in the Lightning. first round. Knocked out in the first round. They did win the Stanley Cup the next year, so a little bit of redemption there. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, playoffs, the NHL playoffs are pretty, pretty random. And certainly I don't think at the extremes of the kind of uh, point distribution per season. And I will say that also I kind of – that it's a historical thing, like all time. I feel like there is a little bit of a, a shift there. I, I feel like for most of the NHL history, they didn't have that whole overtime loss counting as a victory. The point, point. point totals yeah. are not comparable over over too much of history of the NHL. Um, it'd be better to kind of look, I think, at wins or something like that. But regardless, they are kind of on a, a crazy, you know, a relatively historically strong run, both those teams. Um but if you gave me the odds of, 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 you know, if you gave me the odds of both of that, one of the two making the finals, maybe I would pump that up to like, I don't know. Yeah. Close to 50%. Maybe. I don't know. Not even, not even. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's funny. You're taking the two best teams in the league and then I'm taking the other 14 and you'd rather have the other 14. And it's probably oh, yeah. not close. It's probably not even close really. Yeah, that's right. I think it's only basketball where you would want to do that. You know, you maybe would be tempted to take the top two teams. I think that's probably true. And this year, by the way, I don't know about this year. I mean, I think it'd be very interesting to see in the NBA because Phoenix has like a 10-game lead on the entire Western Conference. And I guess right now the Heat are the top team in the East, but I don't think anybody picks the Heat as being yeah. the team that's coming out of no, the I mean, I I, you know, I, basketball is more wide open this year than it has been, at least in, in kind of my time as a casual fan watching it. Who is, who are the, 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 the models picking to come out of the East? 
Milwaukee Bucks right now and the, and the New Jersey Nets. Despite the fact, let's be clear, the New Jersey Nets are in the, whatever they call it, the, not the, the constellation, the play-ins. Oh, sorry, not New Jersey, the Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Nets, Brooklyn <laughs> Nets. They moved to Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Nets. Thank you. The Brooklyn Nets are in the playoff, uh, in the uh, consolation round, whatever they're calling it, the play-in yeah. round. So they're not even guaranteed to, quote-unquote, make the full playoffs. They're going to have a one-game playoff against – and by the way, right now, they have a chance of being the 10 seed, which means they won't even have home court, and they may have to play two play-in games to make the playoffs. Yes, so, they're still a yes. favorite. Yes, Is that because yes. Kyrie's back, and uh, they didn't, you didn't play the whole season with him? and. Yeah, because right, guys, 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 guys. By this very, the very fact that we're talking about, none of this matters, right? In terms of like, I mean, they're not going to be in the finals. No chance, right? Why? Yeah, not. Well, they're like the tenth best team in the conference, right? Is that what you just said? Yeah, but they are. But they didn't have Kyrie Irving wasn't playing home games, so now that he gets to play, that takes them from the tenth best team to like the second or third or first best team. We, we, just finished, we just finished talking about how, I mean, even in this unprecedented era of parody that like, I mean, what's the lowest seeded NBA team to, to make, to go to the finals. Like in your, in the time that you can remember. Not 10. No, 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 no. Well, 10 didn't used to make it. I, I would, I don't even know. I'm, I'm trying to think four, if anybody five. outside. I'm trying to think if anybody outside the top four in my recollection yeah. has ever made it to the finals. Maybe there's been a six one. I remember one point Denver was the eight seed and beat somebody like in the first round. They didn't round, win it I, all though. Or did they made it to the finals? Yeah. So by the way, Matt just put up on the screen here. The Nets, thank you, uh, Adi, the Brooklyn Nets are the second best odds to make it out of the East as the number nine or 10 seed or whatever they're going to be. The Bucks have to be the favorite. That's who asked. The Bucks are defending champ. They're the favorite. I think they are the favorite to make it out of the East. But, of course, the Celtics have been playing extraordinarily well. The Sixers are still around. The Heat are the team with the best record. I think, uh, Shane, I agree with you. I, I think the Nets being the second most. But Durant, by the way, missed a lot of games. Irving didn't play half the game. Yeah, if all so, those guys come back, I mean, obviously, then they're just a different team. They're not really a true 10 seed. They're like – if a three seed, I guess is what people are saying in their mind. And, you know, just the regular season doesn't matter at all. Either way that I, I think that's what people are saying, but either way, basketball will certainly be very interesting this year. So guys, we have just a few minutes left. Um, and as we move towards quarter four in the Neil Payne segment, um, the, the start of baseball is in two days, uh, Adi in just a minute or so what's caught your eye in baseball. What are you looking for at the start of the season? Well, I'm looking to see whether or not the Yankees uh, players seem to be healthy. I think that's uh, always a big one. I, I, you know, the Mets lost Degrom just to, just this past week um, for an indefinite amount of time. That's always the big thing about baseball. What is happening with your star players? Are they going to actually be playing? Um, I think I don't know whether that's part of this incredible surge of power, uh, power pitching, power hitting is also power injuries, but it certainly feels that way. So you're you're saying that. You feel good about the Yankees for the season, assuming they stay healthy. So Exactly. I'll throw one thing out because I am talking about the Yankees here, and this does the greater principle. We now have the DH in both leagues. One of the most confounding observations that seems to be persistent and genuine is the observation that, that, that DHs, that a player who alternates between the DH, does better when they play the field. 
And they've looked, I mean, I should say they, we analysts have looked to try to come up with alternate explanations and there doesn't seem to be one that has come forward. And Stanton in particular looks, he hits a shit ton better when he's also playing the outfield. So I'll be watching to see whether those those new DHs, how they're doing in the, in the National League, who are these new DHs? Can I, can I suggest a, a, a mechanism? Sure. Uh, a player, if, if a player is that, is feeling great and healthy, they're more likely to be playing the field. And they're, you know, basically a player that sometimes that alternates between the field and the DH. Right. That isn't just a permanent DH. There's signal in them being the DH as opposed to playing the field in terms that are overall kind of how good they're feeling. Not a bad mechanism. Not a bad mechanism, but also very hard to, to, uh, to prove one way or the other, because unless, you know, because there's lots of reasons. That go yeah. And it. I mean, like you, you're kind of really focusing on a subset of kind of DH, like kind of the Yankees where they just rotate the, the DH among all the old guys or whatever type of thing. Now, a lot of teams, like, like David Ortiz, like was kind of a perma DH in Boston. And that was, you know, that's obviously a very different kind of way of using it, but it is going to be kind of cool to sort of see all these NL teams have to do with it, you know? Yeah. That's got to be one of the most interesting things to think about in the beginning of the season. How does the NL look when it's now got the DH? Yeah, another thing that's kind of caught my eye behind, besides like kind of at the team level, is just some of these kind of players out there that are kind of on Hall of Fame trajectories at the end of their careers, seeing that twilight, people like Albert Pujols is obviously Hall of Fame, but like, you know, just sort of seeing the last couple of seasons, his career, Zach Granke, these guys, lots of fun players to watch. We'll do a future show on Hall of Fame. Yeah, well, guys, you know I'm happy to talk about the Hall of Fame anytime. So, guys, this has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, Stay with us and join us after the break. We'll be talking to Neil Payne from 538. We'll see you again right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone, to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, statistics, baseball, or sports, if you'd like, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing, Statistics, and Data Science, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, both professors of statistics and data science. One of the greatest parts of Wharton Moneyball, we've been saying this now for over eight years, it's hard to believe, guys, is that we get to have guests on the show who actually spend their time and know a lot more about analytics and sports than we do, and this quarter four is certainly no exception. Um, It would be almost trite for me to introduce him since he's been on the show more times than any guest that we've had. Uh, welcoming back our longtime friend of the show, Neil Payne. Neil, as everyone knows, is a senior writer for 538, where he writes about a variety of sports. We're probably going to try to pin him down mostly to talk about baseball today. Uh, for those of you that want to follow Neil on Twitter, he's a great follow at Neil underscore Payne. That's Neil underscore Payne on Twitter. So Neil, welcome back to uh, Wharton Moneyball. Hey, well, thank you for welcoming back. Uh, This is really exciting to be back on with you guys. Like I was saying before uh, we started taping, I listened to the show religiously. And so it's just exciting to be a guest again. Well, it's good to have you. And obviously, given we're two days before the start of baseball season, uh, there's a lot to talk about. Um, Let me just get let's just get a broad overview before we get into some details about specific teams and players, because we're going to want to do all that as well. Um, what's your sense? You know, we've been on the show for eight years. The, you know, Billy Bean and Moneyball has been 20 plus years now. What's your sense of the status of analytics in baseball just in general right now? Are we like at a point of diminishing marginal returns? Meaning, 
ah, everything's pretty much already done now and known. There's not really any great innovation. Or do you see, where do you see analytics right now in baseball? Well, yeah, first of all, that makes me feel pretty old to, uh, to think about how long it's been since Moneyball came out. My, my goodness. Uh, but, you know, I don't think that we're quite at the diminishing returns point just because there is so much data being added all the time. You know, StatCast was in its infancy just, you know, like five years ago. Uh, and, and we're learning a lot of new things off of that, it seems like, every year. I do think all the teams have really gone all in on it. I think it's hard to find any team that that really hasn't uh, and that that has had a pretty profound effect on every part of baseball. And, you know, I, I think it's set up this situation where, you know, the the straw man arguments of kind of using analytics as the punching bag for anything you don't like about baseball. We're now at that point. But the reason why we're at that point is because it has become so pervasive throughout the sport and a lot of the strategies uh, you can tell that they're being heavily influenced by people that have have done a lot of research on the game. And now we're starting to see almost like the next wave of how people are trying to find edges when they've sort of used up all of the initial wave of, of sabermetric, uh, you know, research and learnings and things like that. So I, I don't think we're ever going to really run out of things to to kind of innovate on. But I do think that you've definitely seen like the full maturation of the effects of that kind of first wave that Billy Bean, Bill James, you know, all of that um, influence in baseball. And now we're kind of dealing with all of the ripple effects and there's a lot of ripple effects coming out of it. Do you think the major innovations we're going to see just building what you just said, Neil, is that um, we're it's because of new data. Do you think new data is, is what's going to always continue to give us something to talk about? Like if we were sitting here with the same data set for the next 20 years, eventually people would run out of stuff. Is it technology and new data that's going to be the, the big spur for it? Or is it better mathematical models, better data science, larger scale computing? You know, maybe it's some combination of all of them. Never it, Eric. <laughs> I think it's a combination of all those things. I think also new rules are kind of bringing in, you know, as long as they're going to make changes to things like roster sizes and, uh, you know, they've talked about tinkering with all kinds of other different rules that, you know, haven't been put in yet or, or they're starting to experiment with, but you know, that's fertile ground for folks like us who love to kind of game out the implications of those things. So I think as long as they're changing the game and as long as there are these dominant strategies, that are also changing the game, you're going to have ways to and excuses to try to figure out the inefficiencies in that. Uh, and then you add the new data on top of that, which of course is like playing off of those things as well. Like there, uh, you think about Theo Epstein, he now works for Major League Baseball's, you know, main office using data that, you know, he would have used to build teams. Now he's using it to try to figure out like, okay, you know, should we, should we move second base? Should we, you know, do all these, should we move the pitcher's mound back? Like all of these different rule, uh, you know, applications of it. Uh, that I think is, is kind of a, something we don't talk about enough is that, you know, in the past it was teams that was, that were using data to be able to innovate and try to find loopholes within the rules. But now you're not just seeing this in baseball, you're seeing it in every sport, basically like the leagues themselves have people who are applied statisticians and data scientists who are trying to almost stay a step ahead of the teams or close up loopholes that the teams have sort of opened up. And it's almost this arms race of, uh, you know, data versus data that I find really fascinating, honestly. 
Yeah, I know. And I'm fascinated by it, too. I, I kind of wanted to ask you about this kind of like, you know, this changing equilibrium we're seeing, because honestly, I mean, I love analytics, obviously, but the various advances of the, the main two, at least analytics are responsible essentially over the last 20 years with making the game less interesting. They are actually, you know, I mean, in the sense of if you like balls in play, I mean, basically, some of the main innovations of analytics is basically is how to how to be more efficient about get making outs and so defensive defensive shifting and like using like you know 12 pitchers in a game like those are analytically motivated ways in which teams have gotten way better at making outs but it's made the game itself less interesting so i i do think it's interesting that theo is now working with major league baseball be like well we gotta we gotta basically change the rules so people stop using analytics to game the way and a game the game in a way that like basically leads to less interesting stuff, like, you know, reducing the amount of shifting and stuff like that. Is that a, so is that a question? Is that a question? Oh, here comes the question. I thought what you were saying, we all tautologically agree with, but keep going. Yeah. Well, yes, but I guess the question is, do you think it'll work? Like, do you think these kind of proposed changes to shifting and some of the kind of ways in which they're trying to limit the number of pitcher substitutions, is that going to swing it back to, where it was or do you think that's just going to be kind of like really nibbling at the margins yeah i'm not sure yet i I think that's uh really one of the most important questions of this sort of next era of baseball that we're looking at uh because they're first of all baseball is a sport with that inherent tension between the the way we've always done things and particularly there's this almost like deification of the rules and the dimensions and all of these things that had mostly gone unchanged for like over a century and now you're talking about making changes to them even if incremental there's a lot of pushback against that but you know Teddy Roosevelt had to watch pitchers hit we should have to too oh absolutely yeah (laughs) I think that's actually the most compelling argument against the designated hitter uh but uh yeah that you know what you mentioned analytics being responsible for a lot of the things that made baseball, you know, less exciting, or at least, you know, stylistically have less action happening. I mean, really, it was the rules as set up long ago that were responsible for that. It's just the analytics were able to more efficiently find loopholes. And I think there's a certain amount, you know, almost this idea of like move fast and break things. There's a certain amount of disrespect for convention that comes out of the idea of like, hey, let's use numbers uh, to judge player value, but let's use numbers to judge strategy. Let's try to tear everything that we once thought we knew about a sport down. I think there's like a fundamental kind of, you know, uh, not maybe disrespect is not the right, quite the right term, but it's this disregard for norms that I think used to be in place that kept people from challenging some of these ways that games were played or ways that that um, stra- rosters were used or strategies that were used. Uh, and, you know, when you take away those norms, you, things start to change really quickly. And that's why I do kind of wonder about whether a Pandora's box has been opened and we, whether we can really kind of close it again or just try to make incremental changes toward shifting incentives in a direction of a, of a game type of game that we want to see played more. And I think that's kind of where the league is coming at it from is they, they know they can't fix these issues overnight. And there's, you know, some subset of the fan population or the viewing public 
that doesn't want those changes or thinks that changes to the fundamental fabric of baseball aren't worth the, the, you know, improvements to slight improvements to the time of game or slight improvements to having balls in play. So I think there's a lot of stakeholders and there's a lot of controversy inherent in changing something in baseball, probably more so than any other sport. Like the NFL doesn't seem to care. They'll make changes to things that seem pretty fundamental to the, the rules, uh, you know, just sort of almost on a whim in an off season and be like, let's, yeah, let's try that. Let's try to, you know, change where the ball is kicked off from or change, you know, rules around overtime and, and all that. I think baseball has a lot more institutional inertia around like, here's the rules, here's how the game is supposed to be played. And, you know, I think people can take advantage of that if they're willing to challenge some of those norms. Uh, uh, so Neil, I, I, obviously you've really laid out the real problem, but one of the things that I hear you talking about and what Shane was referring to is they're, they're really small effects. I mean, you're going to change the shift. You're still going to shift, just not as grossly as they've done before. That might get minor changes, by the way, which is something I think the hitters should probably learn to adjust rather than forcing the fielders back. But but the real my question is, where can we find changes that are that have big effect sizes? And if you ask me, the rate the, and I'm a traditionalist, the thing that has really made the game so different from when I used to watch it as a kid is it's just so goddamn long. Um, and it's not just five minutes longer, 10 minutes longer. It's like 45 minutes longer. And the, and, and the reason for that is it's not that intentional walks. And it's not because we have so many pitchers. It's because they walk around the mound for like 20 seconds and 25 seconds. And the batters are out of the box. Is there any possibility? And what can we do as, as analysts and you as a writer to like get Major League Baseball to say that this has to be changed? You, you got to pitch like they used to. Get the ball, throw it. Get the ball, throw it. I don't care that for the last 20 years you've been walking around and, and catching your breath so you can throw 98 miles an hour. Is there any prospect of that ever changing or is it, or is it just something that, that Max Scherzer and company just I thought, I thought they were bringing in the pitch clocks like next year. Um, well, they did it in the minors, but the, the, the Major League Baseball has a players association and they're not going to agree to it. No, I thought, that was, I, I thought that was actually coming into Major League Baseball next year. I believe so as right? well. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, the challenge so, is going to be Enforcement, enforcement yeah and yeah. how strictly they adhere to it and uh you know yeah you you make a good point about the players association there's again like a lot of different stakeholders who maybe don't have the same interests their interests align some of the time but not all of the time and i think it is the job of someone like the commissioner or someone in the commissioner's office uh, to try to figure out that common ground where they can find places to to make changes that move things in in a faster paced direction. Um, and yeah, you're totally right about the fact that I, I mean, I think batters stepping out of the box, uh, you know, after every pitch and kind of you know doing yeah. their thing for 25 <laughs> seconds is another big factor. I think the players themselves, and you know, there is I believe there was research that players, especially older players. Uh, actually, when they have more time between pitches, they hit better. You know, there is an actual effect to this where, uh, you know, and they're not just doing it for fun or just out of like, I don't know, uh, for, for, for kicks. It really does help them focus more. And so that's another one where like, OK, say you do speed up the game and say you do um you know, enforce this a lot more stringently and you start doing things like adding a ball, you know, if you're, uh, if you don't pitch the ball within a certain number of seconds or adding a strike, if you don't get back in the box, 
what are the ripple effects of that going to be? You know, if older players, uh, you know, need that extra time. And one of the other big issues that we always kind of bang the drum on is the older, you know, free agents not being wanted as much. Is that going to have an effect, you know, on that? Are we, uh, you know, uh, younger players who are already sort of, you know, fundamentally underpaid relative to the value they create, are they going to create even more value and sort of disproportionate, uh, you know, to their salary compared with older players if that is put in place? So you really quickly start to go down the rabbit hole of like, you change this one thing, it has an effect on this totally other thing that then you have to figure out what to do there. And then it changes this third thing. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a position where, I don't necessarily envy somebody like Theo Epstein trying to figure out how to uh, make everyone happy or at least everyone less upset. Cause I think everybody's going to be upset when you make changes to a, a game as, as old and as traditionalist as baseball. Uh, you just have to kind of minimize the, the outrage. Yeah. And I mean, uh, we're, well, one second, uh, wait, wait, which one second? We're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow and I'm here with my co-host today, professor Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here. Every, well, broadcast first time live Wednesdays on 8 to 10. You can obviously listen to our podcast wherever you happen to download your podcast from. And again, we're talking to Neil Payne, senior writer for 538. And since the baseball season is starting in two days, we're talking to Neil about baseball. Yeah, Shane, please go ahead. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think those time of play kind of like changes. I mean, I, I, it's hard to find somebody, even a traditional that argues to get argue against those. Cause I mean, in, in fact, the game used to be actually a lot faster. Um, but I, I, again, coming, coming back to changes that actually would affect sort of the in-game kind of excitement level. Um, I, I kind of agree. I think, you know, sort of restricting shifting probably won't make that big of a difference. One thing that will, or could, you would talk about major effects if you wanted actually is juice in the ball. Right. And they are experimenting with that already. So how do well, you I think guys that's feel? funny because offense is in baseball is the only sport where more offense means a longer game. But that yeah. is also sort of like if you look at other sports, uh, whether it's basketball, particularly hockey and soccer, those sports where goals are less frequent, there's always this you know, you know, people saying that we need more scoring, we need it to be more exciting. And there's not a yeah. trade-off involved where it's like more scoring actually makes this game drag on longer and arguably be less exciting. Baseball actually has that problem. That's another one to kind of throw yeah. onto the pile. No, I, I mean, think. and I, I, guess, I guess in my own priority system, my own subjective priority system, making the game in-game stuff more exciting is higher priority than speeding up the game. Because as I think Audie pointed out, there's a bunch of ways you can speed up the game without affecting the on-field product, or at least not, you know, like directly or whatever. So, so yeah, I mean, something like juicing the ball, would, would we actually, A, I, I'm not, I think that's an open question whether that actually would help because, you know, it could just lead to kind of even more of this kind of true outcome, like, you know, it's either a, a, a strikeout or a home run type thing. Or would it actually lead to more balls in play, more men on base, et cetera, more offense? Yeah, it's exciting. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I do enjoy, yeah. you know, I do enjoy home runs. I don't want to be one of those people like we saw a couple of years ago where it's like the home run record is is falling. That's so upsetting to me. Yeah. Uh, I was like, hey, I like home runs. You know, ever, uh, it's hard to find someone that doesn't. But I do think, yeah, that we saw it a couple of years ago when they had the ball that was juiced. Uh, to our knowledge now sort of almost on accident or at least uh, not not wholly clear that it was a deliberate decision uh by the league 
that's still kind of up for debate, but uh, we, we saw certainly a ball that flew further given the same contact, given the same exit velocity, and it didn't really have an effect on having more balls be put in play. It really did just lead to more of the three true outcome type of mm-hmm. um, gameplay that I think we'd prefer to not have more yeah. of. So it's, it's a little tough to legislate fewer strikeouts. And again, this is something strikeouts have been going up throughout the entire history of baseball because people have always realized that pitchers who strike batters out tend to be much better than pitchers who don't strike batters out yet batters that strike out more do not tend to be worse than batters that strike out less. In fact, oftentimes they tend to be better and that, uh, you know, non equilibrium between the incentives of the batter and the incentives of the pitcher has driven a lot of this stuff, I think, and kind of accelerated it in recent years. Yeah, yeah, and there's we've a talked f- a lot about. Oh, let me just just let me yeah. just transition here for a second, Shane. So we've talked a lot about let's call it uh, analytics and rules of the game, their changes. But if, since we only have you for a certain number of minutes, I want to make sure we get an opportunity to talk about the 2022 season with you as well, and and the season that we have coming up. So let's start with, from my point of view, let's start with a couple of divisions in baseball that I find interesting. So let's start with the one that I always like to talk about, which is the AL East. So. We have at least, I, I think, well, when I say at least, there's only five teams in the division, but we got at least four of them that one could make an argument for could win the division. I mean, obviously, always the $200 million plus Yankees, the close to $200 million or more Red Sox, the Blue Jays, of Not course. Not even close to $200 million. I think it's like, there's a big disparity right now. Anyway. Okay, but either way, the, the Blue Jays, of course, as well are, are in there. And of course, the Rays. We're a very uh, accomplished team last year. Now, the Orioles are going to be better. I don't think they're going to win the division. But how do you see the AL East falling out this year? And how do you even think about making a forecast when you have four teams where a good both statistical and, if you like, story narrative could be made about any of them? Yeah, well, you said any team could you could make a case for them winning the division. I think you could make a case for any of them winning the World Series. Uh, That's sort of, you know, that's kind of sort of always the case in the AL East, but I think in this, this year, maybe it's particularly stacked because we did see the Red Sox make that run in the postseason. We saw the Rays do it two years ago. The Blue Jays last year were, I think you could make the case that they were the best team ever to not make the playoffs, at least in recent like wildcard era, uh, based on their run differential, based on their wins above replacement, all of those stats. And then the Yankees are the Yankees. And we actually have them as the favorites. I know there's a lot of uh, teeth gnashing in, in Yankees town about uh, they're not spending enough and they, you know, them cheaping out actually helped. They didn't the make twins a big free better. agent splash. Okay. By the way, Neil, uh, could, you just, could you just tell us uh, how does 538, like just give us a, a general sense of how do you get the Yankees to be the favorite? Like what kind of modeling goes into the Yankees being the favorite over, by the way, let's be clear, the world champion Braves. The Dodgers, you know, well, they're not. Uh, they're, I said they're the favorite to to win the division. I didn't say they're the favorite to win the World Series. Can't be the favorite. Of the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, but yeah. So what we do is 
sort of like our March Madness model, actually, we sort of take an ensemble of other models. So like you've got Pakoda at Baseball Prospectus, you've got Fangraphs, uh, Clay Davenport, who I'm sure you guys know, he worked for uh, uh, Baseball Prospectus for a long time. We also have our ELO model, Regress to the Mean, and we sort of average together a lot of different models. And then on top of that, we have these pitcher ratings that basically we use to simulate every game of the season and the the starting pitcher has like an adjustment uh, over some baseline expectation for the team's overall rotation. So in games where you have Pedro Martinez starting kind of stuck in the, in the nineties and, and uh, early two thousands. So he was the first name that came to mind, but if you have Pedro starting in like 1999, he's going to have a massive impact on the Red Sox chances of winning compared with like Tim Wakefield or someone like that. Uh, and so um all of those things go in. We simulate the rest of the season, you know, a hundred thousand times or something like that. And then uh, add up how often each team wins. And that's kind of how the, the forecast works. And we have a new wrinkle in this year for how we're dealing with openers, which was uh, sort of a problem. We, we were talking about trends in baseball and, and things that are analytically inclined that are just totally off the wall compared with what people used to do in the game or what was considered acceptable. I think the rise of the opener, especially using the opener in like an, an elimination game in the postseason, we've seen teams do that uh, in recent years. The the Dodgers did it against the Giants in game five of the NLDS last year. Corey Kniebel started and uh, our system just was flummoxed by that because we had trained it on a bunch of historical data where you had starters and starters were starters and relievers were relievers. And you didn't really have openers in, in that. Or if you did, it was like Tony La Russa trying it for like a game in 1983 or something like that. And so uh, we've now made a change for how we deal with that so that it doesn't sort of affect the, the odds uh, of a team winning greatly, because I think it really diminished the Dodgers chances in our model going into that game. So that's essentially how we do it. And then, you know, we, we track it through, it's just a basic Monte Carlo type of method uh, after that. Just a sense, by the way, since, uh, you know, they always, you know, you know, the old statistician joke, which not really a joke you don't play us for point you don't pay us for point estimates you pay us for uncertainty estimates <laughs> with, with 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 what probability do you have the yankees winning it like if you said to me like how much let's let's forget the orioles for a second how much more than 25 percent is it and are we basically you know we might as well say someone has to be in the first place in the simulation but it's no more than 28 percent or something <laughs> it's it's not far off from that so yeah we got the yankees at 34 percent the blue jays at 33 percent the rays at 17 percent and the red sox at 16 percent and then the orioles at less than one percent so we're not saying there's a zero percent chance we would never say there's a zero percent chance until someone's eliminated but uh that's that's how it runs down so yeah those numbers and i think we see this in baseball more than uh probably any other sport where you have to regress to the mean extremely heavily uh, when making any kind of forecast in baseball. Um, And so you're going to get numbers that, like you mentioned, are going to be close to that, like, hey, everybody's got 25%. It's not quite that in in terms of like the perfectly estimate. I was like, yeah, I like to bring things back to uh, why not bring it back to something that a lot of people like to think about it, which is gambling. So if I gave you the Yankees and the rate and the uh, Blue Jays, and you gave me the Red Sox and the Rays, you'll give me two to one odds? Yeah, I think almost exactly. No, no, even, even, saying, even though you did, the Rays and the Red Sox are the ones that actually made the playoffs last year. 
Yeah, that's the that's the kind of funny part. So, I mean, well, the Yankees yeah. did as well. Uh, if you want to count the uh, one game, that's wild card. No, which, we, by the way, we should count that. Expanded, we should count that. Yeah, we do count that. Uh, expanded playoffs this year as well, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of interesting because now you've done away with that one and done uh, scenario, and you have essentially less of a reward to uh, more of a reward for finishing in the top two division winners in each league. But then after that. Everybody below that gets thrown into this best of three first round, uh, what we would call the wild card round uh, still, even though it's not a, a one and done anymore. No, there's no question about it. I was just interested to calibrate the probabilities. It is basically two to one, I, but I, I agree. It's ironic, as Shane said, given the two teams in the bottom part of the two that actually were the better teams last year. But Shane, you, you had a follow-up question. Well, I mean, I kind of want, I, maybe it's just kind of, uh, you know, along the lines of this, is how how do you guys kind of build in things like injuries into this kind of simulation model? I mean, obviously, a lot of the kind of projection systems that you mentioned were kind of feeding in. You know, there's things like plate appearance projections and inning pits projections that probably do factor in at least sort of some kind of differential probability of certain players getting injured or not. Is there anything you guys do beyond that? No, not well, aside from the starting pitchers, that's the other one where um, and even that is not handled probably as probabilistically as we could handle that. That might be something to add for the future, because right now it's like if someone is in the rotation they're there for the rest of the year. Uh, and there's a little bit of a, a tailing off where we, we sort of add a little bit more fog of war to games deeper into the season from now. So it's not totally correct to say like, okay, every sing- every fifth day, their number one starter is going to get the ball. Uh, but, it, you know, it is sort of uh, for short-term games, if someone is not in the rotation, they get taken out. But if they are in the rotation, according to ESPN's depth chart or whatever we're kind of pulling from, then they will apply to their to their predicted games. And that's something where, you know, because we build it into this kind of ELO rating framework as well. So once games start getting played, teams ratings go up and down in proportion to the pregame odds and how unlikely the, the result was and the margin of victory and all things like that, home and road. Uh, you do have a little bit more of a uh, uncertainty just inherent to that system. I think that's one of the advantages of that system as well, is that it does sort of have this self-calibrating and also this, um, you know, uncertainty built into it. And it also changes based on results that you see. So if a team starts playing worse because they all their players are hurt, you're going to find out pretty quickly just because they start losing games. They're not playing like themselves. No, I have to say, I'm gonna, I would I hate to say that I'd be betting against my Yankees, but I don't think that the Yankees and the Blue Jays have a two to one over the over the, the Rays and the uh, and the Red Sox, and not because of their starting ELO ratings. It's just I think that too much of the the inc- uncertainty is is wound up in in Severino and and in for the Yankees the starting pitcher Cole who doesn't get injured that much, but guys like 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 Stanton, this guy spends every other day on the on the on the IL. And you just got to throw in a lot of probability that those guys are going to go down. And then all of a sudn they're just not that competitive anymore. Or the Mets, yeah, or the and, Mets, and, and, Mets, the the Mets, Mets starting Mets starting yeah. pitching as an example, or as yeah. a yeah. As, as a counter example. Like the, the reason I kind of I've, I've become convinced that the Rays are kind of my number one until proven otherwise is I think their formula is more robust to injuries because they basically just find a bunch of dudes that can go two innings. 
And, oh, one of them gets injured. Big deal. There's another 18 of those guys in the wings. And they just like two inning after two inning. That's how they play like every single one of their games. And so like, you know, again, it's not the way the style of baseball that I like watching necessarily, but they've kind of invented kind of a gaming of the system or, or they, they didn't invent it, but they've, they are the poster child for gaming of the system that reduces the variance. I mean, I take Severino and Cole over the, over, uh, the, the Rays, uh, you know, collection, but with, with high probability, those two guys are going down, yeah. which means that uh, that means, uh, yeah, as I said, two to one right now, if they keep their teams as they are through the rest yeah. of the way. Sure. I mean, but the Yankees are going down. I, I, hate- I can't, I can never ma- name a single person in the Rays bullpen and they always have an amazing bullpen. It doesn't matter who's in it. So, so Neil, we only have time for maybe one more question. Let me ask you um, the thing that I've always wondered. So last year, I think we'd all agree the Giants had a season that was extraordinary, given both their most people would say their on paper talent level and certainly their preseason rankings. This may be one of the most extreme cases of we have to do some sort of regression to the mean. How do you even think about regressing a team? I don't remember if the Giants won 103, 105. There were some big They won 107. The Dodgers had 106. And and the Giants won the division with 107. Right. And I I remember, I just didn't remember how much above 100 it was. (laughs) How how do you even think about regressing a team like that back towards the mean? And, And to where would you place them for this year? Well, I think that that is a situation where some of the old like Bill James principles of like the plexiglass effect, you know, all of these things where it's like if a team shows dramatic improvement and they were a sub 500 team, again, throw another factor in there as well. The, the, the sample from which they improved so much was only a 60 game season in 2020. So they had won 77 games in the last 162 game, uh, game season before the, the pandemic in 2019. Then they went 29 and 31 again, uh, two games under 500 in 2020. Then essentially out of nowhere have this 107 win uh, season in 2021 where kind of everything goes right. You've got, you know, like Darren Ruff and uh, Wilmer Flores and, uh, you know, this uh, Logan Webb, this pitching staff, Kevin Gaussman, uh, these guys having just career years all at once and Buster Posey coming back from, uh, uh, from taking a whole year off uh, and having a great season, you know, that to me, is like just such a classic case. And I have nothing against the Giants. I like them. Uh, and I was rooting for them heavily against the Dodgers in, in uh, all season long last year. But that's just classic. Like you look at the history of teams that improve by that much from one season to the next. They give back the majority of it. Not all of it, but the majority of it the following season. And it's just oh, eight, regression eight, to eight, the eight, mean. 85 wins? 85? Yeah, what we have for them right now is uh, 84 wins. So your intuition was right in there. And, you know, you could quibble with like, okay, they've made some improvements to certain areas over the off season. uh, And maybe they've tried to kind of reinforce the pitching staff. uh, And, you know, you can fight regression. I think Seattle is another good example of that. That was a team that had a negative 51 run differential, yet won 90 games uh, last year. That is also really unsustainable if you look at the entire history of baseball. But then they went out and they added a lot of talent over the offseason as well. So it's I'm fascinated by those types of teams that like they're staring at regression and you can either accept the regression 
or you can choose to fight it and see how far you can kind of offset it with what you do in the off season. And so I'm rooting for those two teams to just stay exactly where they were. I'm really rooting for Seattle to actually make the playoffs because they haven't done that since 2001, which is insane in a sport like baseball. Um, but and the expanded uh, playoffs gives oh, all yeah. these teams a little bit extra chance as well. Oh, completely. Yeah. Um, so like in the expanded playoff, I think it was somebody at baseball America did some research and they found that the, the sixth best team in each league on average over the past 10 years, won about 86 to 87 games. So you essentially, I think it's two to three fewer wins are necessary on average to make the playoffs now than there was under the old system. So it's going to have a little bit of an effect for those teams that are sort of on the edge. And I think you make the case for both the Mariners and certainly for the Giants, that they're in that sweet spot, the sweet spot of where you have to be to contend for the playoffs has shifted downward. And I think that's a good thing in the sense that it, it'll keep teams more competitive. It'll keep teams from selling at the deadline uh, or maybe keep them from tanking, you know, going into a season if they look like they might be have a chance to be competitive. Now, I think you could also ask the question of whether it makes sense to build a behemoth team like the Dodgers anymore uh, when, you know, what, what difference does it really make if you can make the playoffs with 86 wins, if you're trying to build a team that has like 106 win talent or whatever. But, you know, that's another thing to kind of unpack for baseball going forward under this new format. Well, Neil, I'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Again, uh, this is we've been talking to Neil Payne. Neil's a senior writer for 538. He writes about a variety of sports, uh, certainly a lot about baseball. Uh, you can follow Neil on Twitter at, at Neil underscore Payne. So, Neil, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. Of sports, analytics, and business here on Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of our producer, Matt Datz, on behalf of our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, this has been Eric Bradlow, and I've been joined by my co-host today, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, enjoy your business, and of course, enjoy the Masters. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. 